Well, good morning. I'm so glad you're with us this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter number 12 in just a moment, but I want you to turn first of all to Galatians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1. We live in an extremely litigious society, and as a result of the excess of frivolent lawsuits, we now also enjoy a ridiculous warning on almost every product we buy. Here's just a few examples. A hairdryer warning label very wisely advised, do not use while you sleep. During the heat of summer, many of you have a fold-up sunscreen to block the sun. Be advised, do not drive with your sunscreen in place. A warning on a portable stroller. Caution, remove infant before folding for storage. Label on an egg carton. This product may include and contain eggs. Sensible warnings. A New Holland small tractor had a warning that said, avoid death. Really? Label on a new washing machine. Warning, do not put any person in this washer. Actually, my grandchildren tried that, but it, in their defense, it was the dryer, and obviously it did not have a warning on it. Not that it mattered, because at the time, none of them could read. We did, however, catch them before they pushed the start button. A warning label on a microwave oven read, do not use for drying pets. My favorite warning was in a zoo. Do not stand, climb, or lean on zoo fences. You may fall. The animals might eat you, and that may make them sick. The end result of these ridiculous warnings is not to make us more aware, but quite the opposite, make us ignore legitimate warnings. In our text today, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 18, is the fifth and final warning to the Jewish believers that the book of Hebrews has for us. And in this last part of the chapter, there is a contrast of the experience of God's people at Mount Sinai, where Moses delivered the law, and the con contrast with Mount Zion, in which represents the glories that are available through grace. You'll no doubt remember that the key thought of Hebrews is seen in the word better. And throughout this book, we have found out what's better. We have seen the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. 
Jesus is better than anything that we might imagine. So now the writer again points out that Jesus is better and that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Grace is infinitely better than the law. Now look with me, if you would, at Galatians chapter 3. The apostle Paul had some very stern words for those who added to works to salvation. He said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul's saying, I just have one question for you. Were you saved by keeping the law? The answer, of course, is no. Why then would anyone wish to add some legalistic requirement to salvation or how to conduct the Christian life? After you left the legalistic requirements of the law and you have experienced grace, why would anyone want to go by? The writer of Hebrews also addresses that issue of legalism. He points out that legalism takes the individual back to Mount Sinai where the law was given. Every man or woman will be judged based on one of two bases. Either they be judged by the law or by grace, by their works or by Christ's work, by the provisions of Sinai are the provisions of Mount Zion. God has two sets of books. In one is recorded the names of all who have rejected God, and in the other, the names of all those who have accepted him through his son, Jesus Christ. The saved are in the book of life, sometimes called the Lamb's book of life. Those whose names are in the book will be judged by what Christ has done on their behalf. We have before us this morning the God of Mount Sinai and the God of Mount Zion. Some biblical scholars today dismiss the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath and terror and say that the New Testament version of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ is a God of love. And that is the right perspective. But we do not have two different gods. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But the same God revealing two different aspects of life and of his power and two ways to approach God. I'd invite you this morning to underline in your Bibles the two contrasting pictures which are introduced with opposite expressions. Verse 18 says, for you have not come. And verse 22 says, but you have come. 
if a person wants to meet God on the basis of their works, then it's back to Mount Sinai. They must go. And when they do, there are certain things they need to understand. Number one, how to approach God. Mount Sinai, the mountain of fear, is given to us in verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be, t- be touched and that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and the tempest and the sound of trumpet and of the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they should not endure what was commanded for if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying is the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling although the author of Hebrews never mentions by name, referring only to the mountain. It is clearly Mount Sinai he has in view. For Mount Sinai is the place where God appeared to Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 19 through 30 to give them the law. Mount Sinai was untouchable, unapproachable, And so off limits to the people of God that God commanded that there be set up a boundary around the mountain so that the people might not accidentally walk into God's presence and be consumed because of their sin. Moses led his people to the foot of Mount Sinai and according to the record in Exodus, this is what they now saw. Exodus 19 verses 18 and 19. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God addressed them by voice. Imagine the scene. If you can, the ground upon which you're standing is being shaken. The sky is inky blackness, only broken by the crash of lightning. An eerie sound like a trumpet is heard, and above it all is heard the voice of God. Everything about the picture of Mount Sinai is you better keep your distance and you can't come any closer. The people who witnessed this awesome demonstration of God's power knew without a doubt that God was not like them. He possessed a power that they could not even comprehend. He was holy beyond anything that they have ever imagined. They had no desire to draw near to Mount Sinai. They were perfectly content for Moses to simply tell them, what God desired. The experience at Mount Sinai was not addressed to produce intimacy, but rather to produce a healthy, reverential fear of God. Yet in all this fear, it did not succeed in promoting holiness among the people of God. 
It did not succeed in changing the heart of Israel. For just 40 days later, they worshipped a golden calf, and it was the God that had brought them out of Egypt, they said. Mount Sinai is a way to God. It is approach. If someone could do all that God had declared in the law, then he or she had the right to go up and stand in the presence of God. But that clearly is impossible. Dependence on works or ritual leaves you at Sinai. But faith in Christ brings us to Mount Zion. So secondly, the second approach is Mount Zion, the mountain of faith. Beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable copy of a company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of a sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Mount Sinai has several meanings in the Bible. It is the place where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mount Zion is the place on which Jerusalem and the temple was built. And it was usually referred to also as the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, as it's described in Revelation chapter 21. The writer is not speaking here of a literal Mount Zion, but rather he is speaking in spiritual terms. Mount Zion was symbolic of a spiritual place that we shall by faith see the heavenly Jerusalem. The Mount of New Covenant is Mount Zion, representing the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the opposite of Mount Sinai. It is not untouchable, but it is approachable. Sinai symbolizes the law, and Zion symbolizes grace. No man can be saved by the law, but any man can be saved by grace. The law confronts us with commandments and judgment and condemnation. Grace presents us with forgiveness, atonement, and salvation. Whereas Sinai was forbidding and terrifying, Zion is an inviting and gracious place. Sinai is closed to all because no one is able to please God by keeping the law. Perfect Keeping and fulfillment of the law was what would be required. Zion is open to all because Jesus had met those terms and will stand in the place of anyone who will come to God through him. Zion symbolizes the approachability of God. Sinai was covered by clouds and darkness. When the writer says, you have come, it is perfect tense. 
meaning a condition already in existence with continuing results. We are already permanent residents and citizens of heaven, Mount Zanai. Christians are now citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. As Paul stated in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, where Mount Sinai was only a temporary stopover. Mount Zion, or heaven, if you will, is a permanent dwelling. In verse number 23, he says we will be a part of a general assembly. But that word is better translated festival gathering. And it implies a festive celebratory atmosphere rather than the gloom of Sinai coming in faith to Jesus Christ draws you near to the joyous presence of the Lord. Beyond how to approach God, we now see how to respond to God. First of all, in verse 25, don't ignore God. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, speaking of the prophets, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice they shook the earth, but now has promised saying, yet once more I will shake it on the earth, but also in heaven. Now this yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The word of God is a reality which each person must turn themselves and their attention. The word can be received or the word can be rejected. But in reality, there is no neutral ground. You are for him or you are against him. You can't say, I'm just neutral. Verse 25 warns us not to refuse the voice of God. So how can we refuse the voice of God? We can refuse to believe what God tells us is true. We can refuse to believe we have a need. You can't get saved and first before first realizing you're lost, that you have a need. We can refuse to believe that God really loves us. Sometimes the reason that people have such a hard time relating to God as their heavenly father is our tendency to project on God the unloving characteristics of the people we look up to. We tend to believe that God is going to treat us as others do. Intensive clinical studies on the development of people's images of God show that our negative, negative images of a God are rooted in our emotional hurts and, un, and in destructive patterns of relating to people that we carry with us from the past. Imagine a little girl who's seven years old. 
who has known only rejection and abuse from her father, who she loves in spite of it dearly. At Sunday school, she is taught that God is our heavenly father. What is her perception of him going to be? Well, based on her experience with her natural father, she will see God as an unstable, rejecting, abusing person that she cannot trust. If your father was distant, impersonal, and uncaring, as a result, you may see God in that same, those same characteristics. As a result of that, you find it difficult to draw close to God because you see him as disinterested to your needs and your wants. However, if your earthly father exhibited positive character traits, then this will have a positive influence on the way that you see your heavenly father. If your father was patient, you are more likely to see God as patient and available to you. If your father was kind, you probably see God acting kindly and graciously on your behalf. If you feel that you are worthy of God's help and intervention, this will be a positive foot. You feel God's love for you deeply, and you are convinced that he wants to relate to you personally, all based on having had a personal and positive relationship with your earthly father. And finally, we can refuse to believe there is a need for us to respond now to the voice of God rather than waiting for a more convenient time. The reality is this may be your convenient time. You may not have another. But there are those who still feel that they do not have a need to do what they need to do right now. And then last, don't forget to be grateful, beginning of verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The word translated, let us have grace, can also be translated, let us be grateful. A heart filled with gratitude to God is always expressed in worship. And that is what is being described by the phrase, and serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. If you're trying to get to God on the basis of what you do, then you're still at Mount Sinai. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, to try to approach God by our works is to place ourselves back at Sinai. And we will discover that our works will never be enough to save us. Whether we are Jew or a Gentile, the, the trust in the blood of Jesus Christ shed at Calvary is to come to Zion where our mediator, Jesus Christ, leads us to the Father where we will find forgiveness and peace and joy everlasting. Let me close with this illustration. 
There's a story told of a pioneer family traveling across the western plains in a covered wagon. They watched in horror as a huge prairie fire rushed toward them, driven by a strong wind. They were afraid that they would be killed by the fire. But the man acted quickly. He jumped down and he quickly lit the dry prairie grass all around the wagon. And as the fire he set burned downwind, he then pulled his wagon into the burned out area. And he and his family stood there as the fire swept past them. Of course, the fire didn't burn what had already been burned. So they survived. They found safety where the fire had already burned. There is one place where the fire of God's judgment against sin has already fallen. And that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. You can choose to wait and stand before God at that final and terrifying judgment. Or you can stand at the cross where God's wrath has already been burned out of sin. I don't know about you, but I'm going to stand at the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all that you do for us, and thank you for what Jesus has done. It may be that among us there's still someone who has never repented of their sins, and they've never asked to be saved they may be still trying to please you by what they do the way they live thinking that their works or that some ritual will save them Lord I pray that you'd help them move to the cross where Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin and the fire of God's judgment has already swept and for those of us who are saved I pray that it would be an encouragement for us to stand to realize what you've done for us and be grateful we ask these things in Jesus name